Hey everybody, how's it going? What's shaking, Bacon? How are you? Uh, welcome to the podcast. This is David Real. Glad to have you on the show. It's uh, always a pleasure. I want to address something about uh, two months ago. Janice Pratt asked me a question on historical camera in Ventura County. Uh, she said, David, what's your connection to Camarillo in Ventura County? Well, no one's ever asked me that question before, and I never gave it much thought. At first, it seemed like an easy answer, but after I began to type in the thread, I realized that in order to give a good, honest answer, I'd have to write a novella, which I wasn't about to do on Facebook. So I merely told Janice I explained later on a podcast. Well, here you go. So Janice, in order to explain, I first need to tell you about an old friend of mine named Pat. He was born in the Deep South in the early 1930s Depression. He was raised outside Oak Grove, Louisiana, the son of a sharecropper. Pat and his family were not poor. They were destitute poor. The entire family toiled in the sun, barefoot, in tattered clothes, hunched over, their shoulders low, picking cotton on a double row in rotten conditions. They had no electricity, no running water, no car, no radio, and the only shoes Pat would receive required him to keep them for an entire year. And if the shoes didn't last, the boy did without. Pat's father, Richard, had been an orphan. And as a father, Richard didn't have too many rules for his children outside the usual parental code folks followed in those days regarding their children. But Richard did have a few rules. One, if he ever caught Pat and his big brother Buster quarreling, they were forced to play slapjack. And I ain't talking about the card game. <laughs> slapjack was a game of punishment Richard invented where both boys were summoned to fetch a switch off a tree, preferably an old hickory, because the limbs on a hickory are tough and really hard to break. Next, the two boys were to thrash one another with the switches while the old man refereed with a switch of his own. And if either boy wasn't going 100% on the other, Richard would step in with his switch and inflict on the boys however he saw fit. You know, I always thought about this, and getting last of the switch to me would be bad enough, but the psychology of actually having to go out to pick the very weapon off a tree that was soon to bloody your ass, to me the psychology is brutal. Think about having your switch in your hand, having picked it, and you're walking back to the house, and you know damn well you can hear that switch cut air as you walk. I mean, tears would be running down my face before that switch even hit my behind. And to me, that's almost worse than the actual beating itself. Anyway, the other rule Richard harbored was a guaranteed beating should either of his sons come home from school bloody. Lost a scrape at school? Twice as bad and you get home. Got paddled by a teacher or principal? Twice as bad and you get home. I guess that was Richard's way to instill a little incentive to not get in trouble at school and to never lose a fight. All their food in those days was either grown in the family garden, or whatever the hell Richard managed to kill in the woods, be it possum, coon, deer, rabbit. By the time Pat was 11 years old, he was already performing the work of a grown man, sometimes picking as much as 200 pounds of cotton in a day. If you've ever had to pick it, you'd know that the spurs and the leaves just devastate your hands during the first few weeks of harvest. Finally, the skin on your fingers and hands gets so callous the straight razor can barely cut them. But 
despite these conditions, Pat was encouraged to excel in school. He made good grades. He played on the football team, ran track, and fought on the school boxing team and in the Golden Gloves. In 1951, he joined the Air Force. He did it for several reasons. Yeah, he wanted to serve, and he wanted to get out of the poverty, of course. But it was his dream to become a pilot. All he wanted to do was fly. By the way, it needs to be duly noted here that Pat thought boot camp was a complete piece of cake. All the other boys complained and thought they were, and he thought they were a bunch of wine and ninnies. Also, he thought the food in the military was excellent. It beat the hell out of possum. After boot camp, Pat passed all his tests, and he got into cadets. But for some reason, Pat's mother, Annetta, she didn't want her son to fly. So she wrote her local politician. In fact, she wrote him so many letters that the politician contacted Pat's base commander, and just like that, Pat's dreams of having a flying career were gone. But Pat remained in the military for over 20 years. He was stationed at Lauer Air Force Base in Denver, then at Tyndall Air Force Base in Panama City, Florida, where the sandy beaches were white as sugar. And this was before the high-rises went in, and you could actually see the beaches there along the Florida Panhandle from the roads. This was also before Castro ruled Cuba. And Pat was able to see the casinos there and hitchhike all up and down that island. From Tendall, he went to Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia, and then to Perrin Air Force Base in Sherman, Texas, just north of Dallas, right along the Red River. His next shipment was to Germany, which he really liked. He didn't care for the old Nazis who were still around after World War II, but he loved the German people, he loved German beer, and he loved the landscape. He even took advanced classes to learn the German language. He also didn't mind the flack he caught from the German people because uh, he had had his 57 Chevy shipped over there from the States. And driving that tank on them narrow streets of Europe was no easy task. After Germany, he was shipped to Malmstrom Air Force Base in a rural place called Great Falls, Montana. He looked forward to working in such a beautiful corner of America as he'd heard from several other servicemen that Montana was gorgeous. God's country, they'd said. He'd also been told it got cold in Montana. But Pat, Pat just scoffed at that notion. Cold? Hell, that ain't nothing for a high-stepper. Besides, Germany gets cold too. The first winter Pat was in Great Falls, the average temperature for the month of December, the month, was 12 degrees below zero. That's 10 degrees colder than the record low Trier, Germany, has had or had ever recorded. And Pat worked out in the flight line. Pat liked to talk about this officer he knew in Great Falls from South Bend, Indiana. And this guy, I don't know his name, I can't remember. But apparently he thought he was a real tough guy, and I'm not sure what it was. It was I don't know if it was because he was from South Bend or whatever, but you know, it gets fairly cold in South Bend, and... Uh, they were drinking some beer in the bar one night, and the guy got really brazen and decided to demonstrate how tough he really was by going out outside for a few minutes in the 45 below conditions without his Arctic gear. Long story short, South Bend went back to South Bend without any ears. But Pat liked to dance. He liked to drink beer, and he loved honky-tonks. And these activities can be performed inside. It was at the J-Bar T at 691 3rd Street Northwest on the western banks of the mighty Missouri River that Pat met Betty Hoagland, a 21-year-old school teacher and Montana native. 
She liked his handsome good looks. She liked his confidence. She loved his dancing. And the fact that he was driving a 1965 Corvette Stingray didn't hurt him much neither. A year later, they were married. Near the end of his stint in Great Falls, Pat put in a request for a warm climate. And by God, he got it. Oxnard Air Force Base! Pat drove down in April of 68 in his Corvette, and Betty followed a month later when the semester came to an end in Great Falls. And wouldn't you know it, Betty got a position teaching 5th grade at Los Angeles Elementary School. But Oxnard Air Force Base closed down permanently at the end of 1969, and Pat had a few more years to serve. Off Pat and Betty went to Klamath Falls, Oregon, and then Grand Forks, North Dakota. They hated North Dakota. It's just as cold as Montana without the pretty scenery. They also missed California. And knowing Pat's military service would end in the spring of 1972, Betty put in for another teaching position in Camarillo, again with the Pleasant Valley School District, and she struck the lotto again. This time teaching fifth grade at El Descanso. After Pat retired from the Air Force in 72, he enrolled at Cal Lutheran College, now CLU, on the GI Bill. And he learned quick that school in his 40s was tougher than when he'd been a youngster. Learning in your middle age comes slower than in youth. The hippie movement was still in full swing, so I'm willing to bet the uh, 40-something flat-top-wearing ex-drill sergeant, boxer, sergeant, sharecropper son from Hard Times, Louisiana... I bet he fell about as much out of place as a whore in church. But he graduated within four years with a degree in finance and a minor in math. He got a job as an otter in Long Beach, put the Corvette on jacks, and drove a Volkswagen Bug to work in L.A. traffic. In fact, he occupied the treacherous drive between Cameron and Long, Re Long Beach by memorizing every street in order along the 101, the 405, and by chewing tobacco. <laughs> Remember how his dream of being a pilot were forever crushed back in 1951? By 1982, he earned his pilot's license, and a year later he bought his own plane, a Mooney M20F, which he later modified to a 201 so it flew faster. 7060 Victor. He logged dozens and dozens of cross-country flights. Louisiana, Texas, Ohio, Montana, Oregon, Nevada, Idaho. But his favorite place to fly was locally here in Ventura County especially after a rain. He particularly liked the white fluffy clouds here after a rain, as he'd fly up next to them and dip his wing into the cloud, give it a little kiss. And he'd take anyone on a ride as long as they helped him pay for some gas. When he retired in 1993, you could find him on any, on any day of the week at Camaro Airport tinkering with that Mooney until the last day he flew it in 2008. Afterwards, it wasn't uncommon to find him having a beer with the boys over at Chewy's. How did he adjust to retirement? Outstanding. After his passion for flying, he was passionate about physical fitness. He jogged 5 and 10 miles a day, way up into his 70s. And at 65, he still had washboard abs and his neck looked like a cobra about to strike. His other endeavors were writing angry letters to his local politician and Every president since Ronald Reagan. He enjoyed researching the best stocks in the stock market with the best dividends. And Saturdays in the fall were devoted to college football, especially the Southeastern Conference and LSU. I'm not sure which he loved more, watching LSU and the SEC win or watching Notre Dame lose. However, despite Pat's harsh upbringing, he turned out to be quite an accomplished man. 20 years in the service, a Golden Glove boxer. Wait, did I mention that Al Weil even treated Pat to lunch 
and New York City once as a gesture to coax him into turning pro, Mr. Weil wanted to be Pat's boxing manager, but Pat turned him down. He turned him down because he was tired of migraines and he didn't want cauliflower ears. This was a tough decision on Pat's part, if you ask me, especially when he considered that at the time, Mr. Weil was also managing a guy named Rocky Marciano. So it's no surprise to me at all. Here it is, July 3rd, 2019, three months to the day after Pat's death, that I miss him dearly. Pat was my father. That old man and I fought many rounds together, as we didn't always get along. But I loved him. I loved him dearly and I admired him. I admired him for many obvious reasons, his directions, advice, his service, his work ethic, and particularly his sensitivity to bigotry, especially when you consider the era and the area of the country in which he was reared. But I guess in the end I admired his bulldog determination to not only get his pilot's license, but to buy his own plane. To have seemingly lost a life's dream in his early spring years, only to get it back tenfold, on his own terms, in his fifties. I just think that is badass. I remember traveling with my father in northeast Louisiana about 1993, 94, 92, somewhere in there. I can't remember the year. He was driving me around in a rental car near Oak Grove, showing me various spots of interest where he spent his childhood. Suddenly, he pulled off the highway. He got out of the car, and I followed. The near thunderous buzzing and clicking of insects intimidated me. They seemed to symbolize and hammer home the desolate conditions and the hopelessness that surrounded us. And the hopelessness that surrounded us were rows of cotton fields. It was hot. It was in August. And I watched him nimbly pick a bowl of cotton. Probably, probably, hell, I'm sure it was the first time he'd picked a bowl of cotton in 45 years. And for some reason I asked him, I said, had you ever, what made you, I mean, had you ever get out of this poverty? He placed his hand on my shoulder, softly. Then he put a little weight behind it. He began to squat down to his haunches. I followed his lead and squatted too. Slowly he raised his left arm. He pointed straight ahead. I looked down his finger at the sea of white cotton and its reflection off the muddy water in the saddle of the rose. Muddy water left behind from an earlier summer downpour. He began to whisper. Just one look. Just one look down that long, lonely road, boy. That's all it took. And that is part of my connection to Camarillo and Ventura County. <laughs>